So just to make you aware, I have some training days that I'm running throughout the autumn, winter and into the spring next year. These are one day trainings in eating disorders and body image, and they are ideal for counsellors, mental health professionals, anyone who's kind of working with people with eating disorders and wants to, you know, expand their knowledge and skills and tips on working with this client group. So my next course will be on Saturday, the 24th of September, and that will be in eating disorders. And then I'll be running like a body image course the next month, eating disorders the next month, subsequently right through the winter and into the spring next year. So if you're interested in finding out more, do go to the eatingdisordertherapist.co.uk and you can find out more and also get in touch with me about booking a place. On this training for the eating disorders, you'll get a really good understanding about the different types of eating disorders. You'll explore typical causes of eating disorders and understand how to create a psychological formulation for your client. And then I will take you through specific skills, knowledge and strategies that I use and when working with people with eating disorders, drawing on my experience of working in the NHS for almost 20 years and also in private practice. So I draw on motivational enhancement therapy, cognitive behavior therapy, compassion-focused therapy, a bit of cat therapy, cognitive analytic therapy, but pulling all these different ways of working together in a way that's very sort of tailored for working with people with eating disorders. So yeah, if you're interested in that, do head over to my website, theeatingdisordertherapist.co.uk and click on the training tab. Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist. And I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Now today I have a guest on the show and I am talking to Cara Byrne who is an integrative, humanistic psychotherapist, that was a mouthful, based in Ireland. She is the founder of Hike Psych, offering walking and talking therapy in nature for her clients, combining her love of nature and psychotherapy. And Cara also works online. Now, Cara has always been fascinated by other human beings and the experiences that shape them. As a child, she was the person that people confided in with their problems if they needed support. And Cara's interest and enthusiasm to support others led her to train in psychotherapy. Cara also has her own food healing journey. Being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of 3, this understandably led to a focus and preoccupation with food with carbohydrates needing to be counted and portions weighed to balance blood sugar levels and to manage insulin doses. Anyone listening that has experience of type 1 diabetes will be truly empathetic to the chronic burden of living with diabetes and how tricky it can be to manage your relationship with food. It's so hard to be relaxed and spontaneous with all the tracking and detail focus required. Growing up, Cara also experienced being in a larger body in a naturally slim family. Now, Cara's family relationships were warm and accepting. However, she did experience some judgment and weight stigma outside of the family. In her late teens, Cara struggled with restrictive eating and inevitable binge eating, which then worsened following the birth of her first child. In the last few years, 
Cara has been on a healing journey in her own relationship with food and her body, leaning towards intuitive eating principles and finding a greater level of body neutrality and acceptance, all whilst navigating this around type 1 diabetes management. Since she began her therapeutic work in 2011, Cara has worked with a vast number of clients dealing with many different issues across the mental health spectrum. However, she has a specialist interest in food, body image, type 1 diabetes and health at every size. I'm really looking forward to this conversation today to hear about Cara's healing journey and also to understand more about how she supports her clients today. There are not many psychotherapists who combine walking and talking therapy, so I'm very keen to understand and hear from Cara about the unique benefits of doing this. Let's get to the conversation. Hi, Cara, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Hi, Harriet. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. So, Cara, can I get you first, please, to introduce yourself and to the listeners? Yeah, my name's Cara Byrne. I'm a psychotherapist here in Dublin, Ireland, and I'm currently Ireland's only hiking psychotherapist. My office is in the hills the Dublin and the Dublin mountains. I also work online. I have international clients all over the place, but, um, but yeah, that's the thing that kind of sets me uh, apart from the others at the moment we'll see I'm sure it'll be something that becomes more popular but especially with global warming and stops being soaky wet here all the time so Mm. So. sure but at the moment you are unique I am (laughs) but aren't we all (laughs) no we are (laughs) so just ask you just a bit about that actually before we kind of like launch a bit more into your story um so obviously with being the founder of I love the name hike psych is that right yeah yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. um it's that magic combination of psychotherapy and hiking and so have you sort of been out this week and what's the weather like in Dublin um (laughs) I haven't been out so far because I tend to work just Monday, Tuesdays, Wednesdays because I have small kids. So I'm trying to work it around my uh, my parenting duties. But and I'm online on Mondays, but I'm out this evening. I have three clients this evening and it's pretty wet today. It's <laughs> we're coming into that time of year where we're into using head torches for our, kind of the last session of the day at the moment. And in a few weeks, it'll all be by head torch mm-hmm. and yeah, getting wetter and colder. But, you know, it adds to it sometimes. Sometimes it's actually a lovely reflection of someone's having a really down day or they're going through something and sometimes the weather and the darkness is kind of a nice way to externalize that you can see your emotions in the surroundings that can kind of add to it sometimes it's almost a place to leave it as well oh it sounds like you're out in all weathers are you like is it something you do literally all year round yeah, it is actually, funny enough, I started it in the winter, so I, <laughs> it was a bit of a baptism of fire. But yeah, no, we go we go all the way through. I would only have to cancel if there was some sort of a weather warning or that kind of a thing. But that doesn't happen too often. And in fairness to my clients, they come out when the rain is coming sideways. I've had mm. them out in hailstones and as well as the heat in the summer. And obviously this summer was particularly warm, but they they show up. They do it in, you know, in all kinds of weather. And I keep a boot full of rain jackets and hats and scarves and gloves and kind of spares in case anyone shows up expecting better weather than we get. But it doesn't 
seem to put anyone off anyway once they've committed to it I suppose but uh, yeah. it does make it a little bit more challenging no <laughs> mm, sure well it sounds like you're kind of well equipped aren't you you're like ready for whatever weather is coming <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah and I think that's often part of the issue isn't it I think often I just think of myself sometimes just not being prepared sometimes when I go on hill walking and like yeah. wearing flip-flops or something oh no <laughs> That's that when you do it spontaneously, when you yeah. just, you're like, you're out and you think, oh, should we go for a walk? And then yeah, suddenly you realise that you're not dressed for it. But no, <laughs> everyone who arrives knows kind of what they're getting into, except for perhaps on the first one, but we can always take it hand on the first mm-hmm. outing. And it's not, you know, it's not Everest, it's a 50 minute session, so it's it's not overly challenging. They don't need to be in, in full climbing regalia. <laughs> Yeah, so maybe not yet. That'll be your next project, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> there you go, yeah. <laughs> so, Cara, I'd like to come back to talk a bit more about the hiking and psychotherapy. But I know that you are type 1 diabetic, aren't you? And diagnosed at the tender age of three. Yes, but yeah, I'm 41 now. So, yeah, 38 years of being a type 1. So it's all I've ever known, really. You know, there's, I don't recall before it, but I do remember vividly the hospital room I stayed in when I was diagnosed. It obviously left a mark in my memory, if nothing else. But yeah, long time. So diabetes greatly affects your relationship with food. I think we're learning more and more about that now. I certainly am. I, people didn't really talk about it when I was younger. But um, it mm. uh, when I look back on some of the things we were told or the way things were set up when I was a kid in relation to food, I just think, how how could I not have had a disordered relationship with it you know I remember going to a Christmas party at the hospital it was like the diabetic ward party and there was a table with snacks and we used to use a system called exchanges so one exchange was the equivalent of 10 grams of carbs you would have a certain limit of exchanges that you could have in a day and you would have to space them out at certain times and this is pre-insulin pumps and pre all of that and I remember the table with six grapes I think was one exchange or you could have one digestive biscuit or maybe it was like a half a digestive biscuit I can't remember and you know everything was in like a little plastic cup of popcorn and you were at the party and you were allowed to have two exchanges and I remember just agonizing over this table going oh my god I'm really hungry but like I, what do I pick mm. you know do I have the like little cup of popcorn and the grapes or do I have whatever the other options were like two crackers and, and an apple or something it was as parties mm. go it wasn't uh, <laughs> that much yeah it was a different world now to be fair it's now with pumps and you know and the whole change and things becoming much more automated and much easier to manage it is way easier now but you know there's a lot of people walking around who had that start with diabetes and are now you know trying to manage things in relation to how they think about food and themselves and what it means to them so there's work Mm. to be done there Yeah, no, absolutely. One of my children has type 1 diabetes. I think what I've been very struck by going along to appointments is the psychological side is lagging behind, I think, a lot, isn't it? In terms of like, when you're kind of given the sort of treatment and the input, you're very much kind of given the rules, aren't you, about what you should and what you shouldn't eat. It's changing. But yeah, there's not an awful lot of space sometimes just to talk about how it feels to be dealing with all of this, how it impacts your relationship with food. And could you say a little bit more, Cara, as well, like 
Because I guess you've given us an insight there, just like going to that party, agonizing over what you're going to be allowed. What was it like day to day? You know, was there a lot of kind of like weighing your food, kind of good and bad foods? Like what was it like as a child living with it? Absolutely. The good and bad foods, 100%. Yeah, there was no intuitive eating wasn't a thing. Food was 100% demonized. It was kind of the height of that sort of diet culture realm as well you know slim fast but a big hit back in those days so essentially it was anything with sugar or kind of anything with sugar was bad and shouldn't be eaten it should be avoided at all costs and that even went so far into things like fruits you know like anything kind of high on the glycemic index like oranges you know you couldn't eat oranges you could but you could only eat them at very specific times of day and you had to really want it because if you were going to have that that meant you weren't going to have something else from the bad category it was this constant sort of balance of never really feeling satisfied with anything and also then feeling bad so if you eat something that you know you're not supposed to but everyone else in your class is eating it you know everyone's having sweets or a little chocolate bar or like even a biscuit something small and you have it well then you run into high sugars then later on in the day and then you're bad for doing that thing and then you're a bad diabetic and then you're no you're a bad you suddenly become a bad person like for eating this very innocent piece of food that shouldn't have any moral value to it it's just food so yeah it's that kind of a cycle you know and it's this whole I'll be good I'll be good and what does being good mean being good means only eating good food only eating foods that aren't going to spike your sugar foods that aren't you know what would have been considered junk food or that kind of a thing but throw a kid into a birthday party and tell them they can only have the good food Mm. their little hearts are broken it was just a very difficult period now I mean I don't know that I realized at the time how much it affected me because you know you just get on and that's what you do with kids their kids are brilliantly adaptable you know they Mm. really are they are so resilient but it's when you look at your relationship or certainly when I looked at my relationship with food later on in my life when I had some more awareness that I was like okay wow you know I really associate my diabetic control with how virtuous my food choices are you know and if I'm being bad in inverted commas it's all of me you know I'm a a bad diabetic I'm a bad person I'm a bad you know I'm a bad eater I'm you know I just I can't I can't get it right and then sometimes then certainly I did anyway use food to punish myself with as lots of people do but I would binge almost as a as a punishment you know I've already been bad it's been a bad day I'm bad so sure may as well keep going on this train while we're here and end the day off with the binge and that's Mm. so you know but I think that all stemmed from that sort of childhood idea of there being such a, a list of good and bad foods. And I have, I'm from a family of, there's I have three siblings and none of them thankfully are diabetic and they all have very healthy relationships with food, you know? So it wasn't mm-hmm. coming from, it wasn't coming from my family of origin. They're all very normal, natural eaters. Do you know they're not at all disordered? So it was the influence I think of that. And then as I got into my teens and, you know, was slightly bigger body than was fashionable at the time, then diet culture also started playing a role and the diet started and the Weight Watchers started and and every diet that has ever been invented, I think I have tried at one stage or another in this quest to, to change the shape of the body that I'm supposed to be in. Yeah. So, you know, it starts with one thing, but often I think I wonder if even 
if I hadn't been diagnosed, I probably still would have fallen into the diet culture trap because I think that was just the time as well. So, but I guess I'll never know that. Yeah, and it showed. It, it sounds like the diabetes, I mean, it certainly didn't help it, did it? No. Just from so young, I think. Having so much more of that kind of judgment around food, that kind of the sort of moral thing going on around. Yeah, really, really tricky. With with regards to kind of like diet culture and, you know, wanting to perhaps restrict and then that leading into binge eating kind of, was there a sort of particular kind of trigger for that? Was it sort of like the kind of teenage years and peers around you, all the sort of media stuff? That contributed greatly to it. I mean, I do think also you know being at the hospital and always always being weighed when you went in always being encouraged to lose weight like that that was never not mentioned the doctors and nurses were brilliant and they were doing what standard practice what was considered best practice at the time you know and so no ill will to anybody you know that was just that's how it was um but yeah I think it's so much worse now we didn't have social media when I was a teenager but you know we did have the magazines we had MTV and I very much wanted to be in a smaller body and that sent me down the rabbit hole of endless diets that work for the first week or two and then result in weight gain rather than weight loss long term so it just it started that cycle of dieting and then restricting and then binging and then trying another diet and then having it all happen again just under a different different name yeah that continued then I think it kind of hit a peak after I had my first child she was born in 2013. After that, that period, I was like a lot of new mums, very isolated, you know, not for lack of friends or for, you know, lack of family, but just you're on a different time scale to everybody else. You're up all night. You're absolutely shattered during the day and you, you haven't got the energy to be getting out and about as you would. And, you know, I am the tiredness obviously will encourage um eating of high energy foods you know so I started to gain a lot of weight in that period to the point at which I just just miserable in my body I really was it didn't even feel like it belonged to me anymore and which actually I think a lot of mums would relate to when you have small kids you already have that it's you've kind of given it over to this little person but I really I was starting to get into it and I just kept thinking like I've done all the diets like they don't work even just get back to my normal self you know not I'm not trying to look like a supermodel but like how am I just going to get back to normal and I kind of I didn't know it had a name I didn't realize it was intuitive eating at the time but I kind of fell into that I was like well look just stop restricting like stop dieting you know essentially and focus on how you feel and what tastes good and what you enjoy and stop limiting things because that's not working and it's never worked and it's never going to work so that's what I did it started to work you know it really did I started to feel better I started to sleep better I stopped binging I you know I wanted to get out in the world and I I started exercising and that for me and hiking in particular changed everything really exercise was always some sort of punishment before something you would do if if you had to or if you had you know you were trying to burn off some demon food that you'd eaten and instead it turned into this way to make myself feel stronger to sort of stand taller to kind of just feel more capable especially having a young baby you know you're carrying this little person around with you all the time like they get heavier as they get older they're harder (laughs) to carry you know I was like I want to be able to run with them I want to be able to play with them that became the motivation to want to be able to do something with my body, not rather about wanting to change how my body looked. That then led me into hiking. That changed everything. So, (laughs) 
it was a journey kind of I, I feel like I sort of stumbled along finding my way if you like but it worked it all sort of came together and then of course discovered that what I actually had been doing was intuitive eating which is something I'm now very passionate about I've just recently sat my intuitive eating counsellor exam and I still have a few bits to do it's quite a long course there's a few bits in it but um, I need to finish my supervision but uh, then yes I'll, I'll be able to officially help others on that path mm. it's been a kind of a an interesting journey with lots of missteps and kind of you know experiences along the way but I think they all contribute um, and mm. it certainly helps me when I'm dealing with with clients who are in space of not appreciating their body I deal with a lot of a lot of clients who suffer with with binge eating and I'm training CBTE as well so you know I use that sometimes for anorexia sufferers or you know and binge eating too but yeah at the root I think of certainly my experience with clients at the root of it all is this desire to appreciate yourself and this Mm -hmm. constant feeling of just not being good enough just not being what people expect of you yeah I think that's for me that's been my experience that that's what's behind it all as well as the influence of diet culture but I think they're one in the same really yeah no you're so right aren't you I think it's almost like sadly in our culture to become good enough it's often kind of so like wrapped up in how you look isn't it and your body size yeah and we forget Mm -hmm. that like 80% of our height is determined by genetics 70% Mm -hmm. of our weight is determined by genetics like you wouldn't expect somebody to change their foot size because all the models have a size six and you're a size eight so you're like well I'm going to have to make my foot smaller (laughs) like that's just not how it goes we are all different we are different heights and different sizes and different eye colors and different and we're not meant to look like clones it's it's a crazy world we live in where we think that our bodies are supposed to be this cookie cutter you know of whatever's fashionable at the time and that changes too you know depending on what area you're in Mm. so it's about learning that being yourself is fine that's who you're supposed to be yeah and I'm so with you and it sounds like with your journey like stepping more into that intuitive eating place even though perhaps you didn't really know it at the time (laughs) (laughs) it was coming back to sort of that self-trust wasn't it like in a way like you were kind of you started to sort of reject the dieting the Mm. kind of limiting yourself becoming more like listening to your hunger listening to what your body needed and also your whole relationship with movement as doing what kind of felt good rather than it being this kind of self-sabotage, self-punishing thing that you yeah. did. Yeah, because you're not motivated, you know, like our brains are natural rebels. If we tell ourselves we have to do something, that's guaranteed to be like, yeah, no, <laughs> you know, I don't think, you know, well, that's my brain anyway. But, mm. you know, whereas if I'm like, I want to go, I want to work out, I want to go for a walk, I'll feel great if I get out for a walk, then I will, you know, and I, I yeah. have a very strict rule about not I used to go to the gym at the crack of dawn because I was into that at the time I'm not so into that now (laughs) so I'm not but I would always even when I was doing that I would have a rule that if I woke up in the morning and I was like I'm not really feeling it today I wouldn't go because if I went it would be I would be pushing myself to do something that wasn't being true to my body I wasn't respecting what my body was saying my body needed more sleep it didn't need to do a weightlifting class at 6 a.m you know and that worked you know that really did it it took away that part that exercise often plays in in diet culture about it being a tool to shrink your body down you know and it became a tool to strengthen myself and to allow myself to do everything that I could possibly do physically and that Mm. that was a beautiful change in perception for me 
Yeah, and it sounds like a massive game changer, doesn't it? You kind of completely flipped it on its head, didn't you, from how you viewed things before? Yeah, I really did. And I mean, to be honest, I didn't, for the majority of my life, I did not exercise at all. I was, I sometimes joke with clients, if you ate a food and you got all red and sweaty and felt like really hot, you'd assume you were allergic to it. So I was like, well, I just assumed I was allergic to exercise because that (laughs) kept happening every time I did it. Um, You know, I'm like, I'm all sweaty, my heart is racing, I'm clearly allergic to this. But it's uh, obviously that's not the case. But yeah, I did. I just, I just learned to love to move and to do it outdoors. There's just nothing better than that. It's just so good for you to be out and disconnected. And because gyms and all are great. And look, in in rainy countries like yours and mine, sometimes it's a very handy way to get some movement in. But there's nothing like getting a good walk in or a good hike in outdoors with views and nature and just the, the wind in your face. It does. It adds so much to it. Yeah, and it's that kind of magic combination, isn't it? I think of bringing all those elements together, which is so great for well-being. Yeah, it really is. So, Cara, can I just ask you a little bit more as well about, obviously, when you were in that sort of restricting and binging phase, which was sounds like really, really challenging. So I'm just very aware as well of trying to manage that with your diabetes as well. It must have been hugely challenging. So can you just say a little bit more even about that? Because I think something's just not really talked about enough. I can imagine sometimes as well, if you'd had a big binge, I'm just sort of wondering if that then impacted how much insulin you would take, if it got you into a bit of a pickle almost with some of your diabetes management. Yes, constantly. No, I mean, you can't, as diabetic, you can't consume large amounts of sugar or carbs without then having to counteract that with large amounts of insulin and the more insulin you're using greater your insulin resistance becomes because your your body's just adjusting to it all the time so really it was having quite a negative impact on my diabetes management as a whole and then the swings are quite high you know so you're restricted running into low blood sugars and then that makes you starving and then that will trigger a binge you know to fix the low yeah. blood sugar but you'll overshoot it and then you're high and then you're dropped again and then you, you know it's there's no balance when you're eating in a disordered way like that there's you're constantly just swinging from high to low high to low and that just makes you feel awful as well it's like on top of all the other psychological distress and not feeling comfortable in your body you just feel sick all the time you either feel lightheaded or you feel really nauseous it's not a a good strategy you know in terms of maintaining proper control and just life when I did Mm. sort of start my journey that completely changed my insulin requirements it lowered my insulin resistance massively I was using gosh I mean trying to I was trying to think of it there the other day I think I used to take at the height I think I was taking maybe seven units of Nova Rapid insulin to cover Mm. breakfast and now I would take for the same breakfast I would take maybe 1.82 that kind of range like that's huge and I'm, I don't know how many of your listeners are diabetics they might not get that but any of those who are diabetics would be like yeah wow okay that's a big difference for the same food at the same time of day that was the change in insulin resistance for me from give, from essentially giving up dieting it really does it changes everything and you and you do you feel better in yourself you're not constantly high constantly low either ravenous because your sugars are dropping or feeling sick and nauseous because they're high it's a much steadier, much nicer. I mean, diabetes is constant management. There's no, there's no perfect day. No one has them. Doesn't matter how great you try, you know, because everything affects it. The weather, 
time of the month, everything, <laughs> how you feel, stress, how crazy my children are being on a particular day. You know, there's a lot of factors that go into a, a day as a, as a type one, but having better control and having less insulin resistance, that makes all of the other ups and downs that are unavoidable much, much easier to manage. Yeah, well, thank you so much for sharing that, because I just think it's hugely validating for people to hear, you know, if they are struggling with type 1 diabetes and then with eating issues, because I think it's just not talked about enough. I just think, just really appreciate you just being so open about just how difficult it is, actually, and just physically and mentally, how it's like a whole nother layer on top of the eating disorder, isn't it, that you're kind of dealing with? that's hard I think so many people with diabetes do sometimes struggle but then feel they can't tell their team or they feel a lot of shame because of like you talked yeah. about earlier all that kind of like you need to be a good diabetic and yeah. lose weight yeah. and eat the right foods but I think these problems are much more common than we recognize you know I really appreciate yeah. you just being so open about oh not at all but it's true you know these things still aren't really that spoken about in the diabetic space there's not you know I requested a haze-aligned dietitian for my diabetic appointments you know and she's lovely the girl I work with but a lot of people don't feel comfortable to do that especially people in the bigger body it's a much harder space because that Mm -hmm. that kind of medical model is still very much focused on BMI is king and that alone Mm -hmm. is problematic because it was never designed for individual use it was designed for geographical or demographical uh, research you know it's not meant to be used for a one-on-one assessment but that's the way a lot of people are treated and you know there is that sort of respect for the medical community which is well earned you know I'm from a family of doctors mm. so I'm not going to start dissing doctors here but <laughs> but a lot of people yeah. feel like if the doctor says that they have to do it you, you know it can't be questioned essentially is what I'm saying and actually sometimes it's okay to question and um, because maybe your doctor or your GP or the people on your team aren't aware that there are other ways to do it other than just losing weight and I think it's, if you feel strong enough to challenge or to ask or to even just share some information then you should because it might help a lot you know and it might help people coming after you as well to get kind of more care that's you know more care that's aware that there's more to management than weight loss yeah no hear hear <laughs> sorry it's a bit of a rant <laughs> no I, I tend to do you. that <laughs> no I think it's great I just think we just need to be having more of these conversations absolutely so Cara the hiking and psychotherapy combination then as well like when did you kind of have that light bulb moment or had you been thinking about it for a long time or how did that all come about I had been thinking about it for ages one of the main reasons is that I live in Dublin where trying to find a house that has a spare room that you can see clients in is virtually impossible yeah I wanted to I just wanted to incorporate the two I thought what a good idea to mix this thing that I love because every time you go on a hike with a group of people the people just open up this is what I had been seeing I'd been doing loads of group hikes with with friends and with you know friends of friends and you'd go out and with no intention to talk about anything kind of heavy but people would just naturally start opening up and you could be meeting someone for the first time and by the end of the hike you would literally know their whole life story and feel a deep empathy for them and and they would feel so much better for having offload while getting out and moving and so I just thought well, like wouldn't that be a lovely way to work to do my psychotherapy mm. work yeah I said I'd start it I said I'd give it a go so I just started with one client it was back in November and 2019 funnily enough just before Covid happened oh. I had just started and it was going well I was, <laughs> I was trying to get the hang of it 
the walking and talking bit is is, is harder than you would think when it's uphill, you know. So yeah. uh, there was a lot of heavy breathing and <laughs> having to stop until I kind of got used to it. But uh, and for clients as well, you know, I had just started it before COVID, and then all of my work went online. So all of my clients suddenly were online. Not the person I started with for hiking, but. And, you know, lots of my clients were like, could you, you know, are you doing any person to person sessions? You know, because I'd really I don't really like Zoom or for people who were in a space where Zoom wasn't possible, you know, that they didn't mm-hmm. have any privacy where they were staying or they just couldn't do it. So I started opening the space up to some more people. It kind of just took off from there. And it's still just me. I'd, I'd love to add some people to the team because I can only walk mm-hmm. so many <laughs> I can only walk so many miles in a week. <laughs> Yeah, it has been lovely. It really has. I still, like I was saying, I still have people online. I don't know what's going on at me. I mean, I have clients in South Korea, Australia, two in the States. Mm. <laughs> I, I like Zoom has just made everything amazing. You know, you can literally yeah. do sessions with people all over the world. It's amazing. But obviously for my hiking sessions, they're te- they tend to be Dublin based. There's something lovely about it. It's just, it feels more natural. You know, I have found that there's quite a lot of neurodiversity in clients who come to the hiking therapy sessions in particular. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes sense because it's a space where you're not having to sit in that kind of intense eye contact like you would in session in a room or on Zoom. That's been a lovely lovely segue into that area which is also as well as eating disorders actually funny enough I got my interest in eating disorders stemmed from from the ASD space because I did through family autistic people in my family I had seen how people who are diagnosed late are often diagnosed with an eating disorder and then it is only through that it is discovered that they are actually autistic so that was part of my interest in it so it's so interesting then that the hiking which I hadn't been thinking about at the time in terms of ASD actually has brought all of those things together in this little space it's been brilliant like I said the weather is (laughs) has to be taken into account especially coming into the winter no it's amazing and and like essentially what you're doing is combining forest bathing with therapy and with joyful movement you know with sometimes not Mm. to feel so joyful but like it's supposed to be joyful movement and so you're getting the benefits of everything you know you're getting that disconnection from tech and from noise and from lights and all of that kind of distraction you're getting that you're getting movement you're getting mindfulness because you have to be mindful on the trail you know especially when there's loose rocks or it's, it's icy or you know you have to be very present which means you can't mm-hmm. be in anxiety you know you have to be anxiety can only live in the future you can't be present mm-hmm. in the moment if you're away in your head so it's very grounding in that and it also gives a beautiful space for a pendulum that swing to out in and out of trauma so it's if you're dealing with something very heavy being out in a natural space allows for a really easy step away a break away because dog will run mm. by or you know the wind will shift or you know or the, you see other mm. people like we're not alone in the mountain you know you'd have somebody else might pass you by and and that will give you a chance or there'll be a view and it mm. gives the client a chance to be like oh look at the view and catch their breath and to kind of swing in and out of that space of trauma without getting sucked into it it's a very Mm. safe space 
to work through some really heavy things because mm. you aren't trapped in it. You know, it allows for natural, natural breaks that can be put in by me or by the client. It just adds that extra element to it that's, that really seems to work. You know, it really does. And I often say to clients as well, it, it doesn't matter how hard the session is, you'll still be glad you, you went for the walk. You know, you'll mm. still, at the end of it, you'll still be, you know, your body will still feel grateful for that, even if your mind is a bit fried from a session because you know therapy is hard it's not it's not easy mixing it with the hiking is just makes the whole thing a lot more kind of whole body clients seem to enjoy it yeah and Cara you work with sort of anxiety depression bereavement eating issues you work kind of a, yeah. across many different sort of mental health issues is that right yes yeah I'd like like my kind of two areas of passion are neurodiversity and eating disorders to be honest I find with those you can't cut out anything really you know because yeah. everybody everybody has a trauma based anxiety yeah. is within us all I like to kind of keep it as it or sort of market it if you like as a general practice yes yeah. but those are my areas of kind of special interest but it's like they do they come into everything anyone who comes in with any sort of disordered eating there's a history of something else almost always you know or there's yeah a huge anxiety right I'm a generalist but but I have passion areas that are uh, neurodiversity and yeah disordered eating I know not not a specialist not as specialized as you I think I might have to do some of your uh specialist courses <laughs> you're running. I know get some extra insight because you must have a wealth of information from work with the NHS I'd say you've seen everything from every angle yeah I mean I guess I have but I think it's all strengths and weaknesses isn't it I think um <laughs> I think yeah the downside of the NHS sometimes is you're so in the focus and yeah. there's so much focus on the food you know because you're dealing sometimes with people in crisis or so I, I think it swings around about do you know what I mean <laughs> I really do <laughs> I know I think in therapy it's hard not to fall into one specific kind of hole sometimes as well I keep trying to pull myself back out into general because it is easy to sort of slip into one thing and then like while it's brilliant to get specialized in a particular area if that is the only area you're going to stay in I just think our psychological lives are so broad and so diverse and yeah they're just spread out into so many different areas that ignoring the others just it actually limits yeah of your practice so yeah and I'd it's like so true kind of, you know I think it's so true to interrupt you there so true what you're <laughs> saying about it's you know just thinking about what beat always say mm. the National Association for Eating Disorders it's not about food it's about feelings and yes. it's yeah you know <laughs> the symptoms can be can kind of cloud everything can't they but absolutely once you start peeling back the layers of the onion it's about yeah. everything up, apart from food really isn't it often you know yeah. like early traumas <laughs> or relationship things oh, or, yeah. or all of that so I'm completely with you really I, I'm sure actually really Cara probably the work you and I do is mm. not really so different it's just how we market yeah. ourselves <laughs> sure <laughs> <You know>? yeah <laughs> <laughs> but like we need specialists too you know like that's it's yeah. so important that like for things like Rexia, it's you need someone who knows what they're doing that's way too dangerous a field to be in yeah if you're if you've done a weekend course in something you know what I mean that's yeah. just not sufficient like there I, there is a space for everybody I think within the therapy sphere but um yeah I keep trying to stay in general because I just I like the mix you know <laughs> I like to yeah. uh, like to get a bit of everything but you never know what you're going to get even if you've done kind of a, an assessment you know this as well you know you say what are you coming to what has brought you here and what they start with is often completely different to what you end up speaking about we're very complex 
We certainly are. (laughs) So, Cara, where can people find you if they want to get in touch or, you know, ask you more questions about the work you do? Well, my website is www. I don't know. Am I is that old school to say that? (laughs) It's www. Hikesyke.ie. So it's H-I-K-E-P-S-Y-C-H.ie, and I'm also on Instagram at hikesyke.ie. Yeah, that's the that's the easiest place to find me. I'm a bit of an Instagram addict, although I'm not very good at posting. I'm quite erratic with my posting schedule. And poor you, you lost your account. Oh. Yeah, that was a bit sorry. frustrating. But... <laughs> oh, I'm so, so sorry yeah. for you. I think that's everyone's worst nightmare when you have a business that's kind of Instagram based. Oh, just yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Well, no, thank you for the empathy. <laughs> It was very frustrating. Right. Yeah. And I've kind of lost my, I don't know if I can just do it again, to be honest with you. Oh, like, I'm, you know, that's another account. But anyway, yeah. I kind of think at the end of the day, it is only social media and it could have been a lot worse with a lot of other things going wrong. So anyway. The amount of work that goes into these things, this is why I don't post very often because it just takes so much work. But, you know, to put a, an informed post together, it's grand if you're posting a selfie or something. But like first, I think for anything basically, in psychology you want to make sure that the information you're putting out is correct you know that it's right you don't want to be misleading you don't want to you want to make sure you've checked your sources you know so I think the amount of work that it takes to kind of run a page like yours you know it's hard to lose that work and then feel motivated to do it all over again but yeah I'm not I'm not that consistent but I do check my messages so if if anyone does want to reach out I will always respond as quickly as I can Hey, no, lovely. Well, I'll make sure, you know, your website and the Instagram go in the show notes. Um, thank you. Okay. Well, Cara, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. And I really just appreciate you talking through your story, you know, sharing more awareness about type 1 diabetes. I think it's so much needed and how you sort of stepped more into that intuitive eating space and also about hike psych and the wonderful <laughs> work you're doing. Um, you know, all really inspirational. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did and do go and check out all of Cara's info in the show notes. If you're not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at the eating disorder therapist underscore. And for further support with your relationship with food, do go to the eating disordertherapist.co.uk. If you enjoy this podcast, I'll be so grateful if you'd follow, rate and review as it helps it reach so many more listeners. Thank you so much for listening today and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon.